Podcast, the weekly podcast from Impress News that goes behind the headlines and shares the stories corporate media doesn't want you to hear. Find us at mintpressnews.com and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mintpressnews. Neoconservative. Is it a phrase that it, it is a phrase that is used constantly in news and politics as prominent neoconservatives or neocons as they are often known push for regime change and war in Iran and Venezuela uh, and other geopolitical hotspots around the world. But what does that term mean and who are these neocons? Today, myself and co-host uh, Alan McLeod are joined by musician and filmmaker Robbie Martin. You can find Robbie on Twitter at Fluorescent Gray. Robbie is based in the Bay Area, California, and is the creator of the documentary film trilogy, A Very Heavy Agenda, which explores the rise of the neoconservative movement in Washington, D.C., how they came to dominate foreign policy in the, in the late, from the late 90s to today, um, and how they have returned to force in, in the Trump era. You can find uh, his documentary films on a very heavyagenda.com. Robbie is also the co-host of the Media Roots podcast with Abby Martin. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, so when uh, when two people interview someone, we often do a sort of good cop, bad cop thing, but I think today it might be like a smart cop, dumb cop thing, and I'm definitely the dumb cop in this one. So my first question, Robbie, is could you just sort of explain what you mean by neocon? <laughs> it's a term that you hear quite a lot in the political world, but it rarely seems to be actually defined. Uh, to me, neoconservatism means kind of like a school of thought or a movement that came about came into power during maybe the administration of George W. Bush in the 2000s. And then, like, you know, people like Dick Cheney, Bush's vice president, Paul Wolfowitz, Bush's deputy secretary of defense and former president of the World Bank Group, or Robert Kagan, the conservative writer and historian. A lot of people thought, yeah, a lot of people thought to be neocons cut their teeth in the Ronald Reagan administration in the 80s. And the main thrust of their ideology seems to be, to, to a layman anyway, to be a conservative domestic uh, agenda with a very warlike foreign policy where they see the U.S. as this ultimate arbiter of the world and neocons advocate for attacking any country and toppling any foreign government that doesn't see eye to eye with the U.S., for instance, you know, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, Venezuela. Um, so it's this complete dominance of the world that, that they're trying to offer the U.S. Is that a fair statement of what it means? What do you think? I mean, yeah, all the, all the things you said are, are very true. Um, and there are different ways to define um, neoconservatism. And I go back to the original, uh, when, the, when the original term was coined, um, it was coined uh, by a critic of Bill Crystal's father, Irving Crystal. Um, for his ideology and his point of view. And Irving Kristol, uh, said that essentially what turned him into being conservative from being liberal was, uh, being mugged by reality. And so the term, you know, the term neoconservative back then literally meant someone who was liberal and believed in the liberal ethos of sort of the sixties and the seventies who, tr- who turned conservative, who was sort of you know, faced with the harsh, cold reality of, of the world, you know, and, and grew up and became an adult. So neoconservatism was originally defined by a critic of Bill Crystal's father, Irving Crystal, um, because of the ideology that he held at the time, which essentially he was this, um, this political, political writer 
who flipped from being a liberal and believing of sort of the liberal values of the time to being a conservative. Um, and it, one of his critics called him a neocon, um, someone who flipped from being a little too conservative. And in Irving Kristol's own words, he described that process and that transition for him as being mugged by reality, um, which to him sort of meant, you know, being faced with the harsh, cold realities of the world. And, you know, it's time to grow up and be an adult and, and sort of face what America's role should be in the world and things like that. Um, but throughout the 70s, uh, this was like in the early 70s that the term actually came into existence. Um, but throughout the 70s, uh, there was this guy who sort of largely defined that ethos um, before the Reagan era. And it was a Democratic senator named Scoop Jackson. And uh, one of the people you, you mentioned earlier, Paul Wolfowitz, who I would describe as like the arch neocon of the Bush administration. Um, he sort of cut his teeth uh, by writing speeches and being a staffer for Scoop Jackson. And so did actually a lot of these other neocons. I think actually Elliot Abrams did as well. And Scoop Jackson was probably um, one of the most hawkish Democratic senators at the time. Almost think of him almost like as a John McCain of that era. Um, even though, you know, John McCain's not a Democrat, he sort of, you know, was apart from the Republican Party. And um, the, the neocons from that time period were really particularly interested in moving the needle of the foreign policy debate. So by having someone like a Democrat, like Scoop Jackson, taking this very hawkish position against Russia and the Soviet Union at the time was very valuable um, because, as we see today, uh, crossing party lines and getting sort of this hawkish foreign policy to spread across the aisle um, almost seems to be the goal of, of the neocons now. And so, you know, apart from just pushing war all the time, which they primarily do, one of their main goals is also to sort of spread their ideology around um, as wide as and as broad as possible in D.C. Well, it's interesting you and bring up that um, that backstory. How originally it was people who were you know on the left, so ostensibly on the left, and then moved to be conservative, and that they have this you know interest that we're seeing more of now with you know having dominated sort of uh, the right in the U.S. and then also trying to spread that back to the left where they supposedly originated, which is kind of an um, Interesting. So, um, um, and, and that, of course, brings us to the idea of this sort of bipartisan nature of, of the neocons and how this is sort of, you know, as you say, sort of the long term goal. Um, I feel like, you know, in recent years, especially, we've really seen a lot of the, uh, the neocons, you know, sort of become members of like the so-called, you know, anti-Trump resistance movement. Uh, you know, like woke Bill Crystal and all this stuff. Um, have you seen? Uh, do you would you agree that in recent years, uh, you know, that ultimate goal of neoconservatism uh, to sort of dominate both sides of the foreign policy debate has been has been successful? Hundred percent. I mean, it's never been. I, as far as I've been paying attention to politics, I mean, since really the Bush administration, when I've been most aware, um, it's never been this bad before uh, in terms of the consensus of you know, agreeing, largely agreeing with neocon foreign policy across D.C. Um, maybe that maybe right after 9-11 uh, was arguably the last time there was this much consensus um, because of how many people voted for, you know, the AUMF, for example, um, right. which is a very neocon uh, construct, in my opinion. Uh, but no, I don't think um, I think this is this is almost the worst that I've ever seen it. 
Right. And one of the few, one of the main uh, foreign policy issues right now is Russia. You know, just a few years ago, the idea of Russia being the enemy number one or any threat to the United States was literally laughable. I remember in 2012, during the presidential campaign, Mitt Romney claimed that Russia was uh, a big geopolitical rival of the US and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry mocked him for being out of touch and he became the butt of jokes for all these cable news hosts like Rachel Maddow and and Chris Hayes for days. In fact, I remember Barack Obama even said the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. And yeah, well, you know, now some of the neocons from the 80s are back and the US has made Russia its enemy again, funding anti-Russian forces in Ukraine, for instance, or expanding NATO to Russia's borders or attacking Russia's allies in Syria, for instance, and just generally threatening Putin. How have the neocons become involved in all of this again? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, interestingly, that debate moment that you're referring to, uh, where Mitt Romney said that, um, he was actually being advised by two uh, very influential neoconservatives who uh, were were associated with PNAC, uh, Bill Crystal's thing, outfit. Um, out and of DC. PNAC is Project for the New American Century, right? That think tank. Yes. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Um, which, which many people argue, and they're right, is that they were chiefly responsible for creating the blueprints and the propaganda blueprints for the, for the Iraq war. Um, they had, I believe, 17 members of their think tank transition into the Bush administration. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the largest transitions that I know of on record of a think tank going into administration. Um, you know, that's kind of old news now, but Dan Senor and Robert Kagan, uh, Robert Kagan is the co-founder of were actually two of Mitt Romney's more policy advisors during those debates. And they were, you know, pushing this anti-Russian stuff, um, openly, uh, even before 2012. Um, there are speeches of Robert Kagan, uh, from the nineties, um, I think from the American Enterprise Institute or some other think tanks where, He's basically talking about how with the end of the Cold War, um, we need to figure out a way to face a belligerent Russia if they become belligerent again. And the whole framing of it is basically they will become belligerent again and we will need to face them again. So we should start like preparing now to figure out how to do that and how to take advantage of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not that many years later, they're already trying to, you know, insert Russia into the debate in 2000. You know, twelve, um, and they, of course, they were widely laughed at and mocked. Remember that idea was, and I don't say they weren't mocked because nobody really knew they were advising um, Mitt Romney. But yeah, it's really interesting how um, they what they've been doing basically is they've been at the tip of the spear and trying to push this debate in D.C. and uh, they've they've been just really really dedicated to it. So you know, even before 2012. They were heavily pushing, for example, like the Magnitsky Act. And a lot of these neocons were responsible for creating sort of a PR campaign to get that to really stick. Um, and we know John McCain, for example, was instrumental in getting that bill uh, to pass, um, I believe, through the Senate in the U.S. Um, and John McCain uh, is someone who plays a really interesting role here, where he seems to be <laughs> the conduit um, for uh, most of the, the sort of anti-Russian hysteria from the neocon think tanks directly, like they're stovepiping uh, stuff directly to him. And they have been since the passing of the Magnitsky Act. So 
they've basically just been inching forward and forward this this awareness or this fear of Russia um, to the point where, you know, and then it really came to a head with Ukraine, um, of course. And we saw in that example that Robert Kagan's wife, who happened to be the assistant secretary of Eurasian Affairs at the time under the Obama administration, actually played this really crucial role in playing musical chairs with the Ukrainian government. Um, and she was caught on tape doing so. Uh, so, you know, it's, you can really draw a, a direct line, um, going all the way from these neocon think takers all the way until the Ukraine coup. Um, so that's really when it all came to a head. And then of course, you know, it's, all this Russia hysteria now is, I see it almost more as like an extension of all that stuff that had previously happened. So like Trump getting in this, in the middle of Russia gate, um, you know, I almost just see a sort of the last stage of a, of a giant train that these neocons have created, this unstoppable train, um, that's just been building momentum and momentum. And, and by the time Ukraine happened, it was just unstoppable. Uh, the momentum was just almost self-perpetuating at that point. I mean, you had magazine covers, all over the country with Putin's face on it, you know, even before Trump was a, was a presidential candidate. So, um, you know, this is, uh, this has been going for quite a while. So, um, I don't know if I properly answered your question, but <laughs> no, that was good. And it, it was clear. The Magnitsky Act, that was basically sanctions on Russia, wasn't it? Because of, uh, uh this man, Sergei Magnitsky, who died in Moscow in a prison, right? Yes, they were, they were heavy sanctions and I think they were even, it was the style of sanctions that we've seen more recently where they're like sanctions on specific individuals in Russia, like Russian oligarchs and like police chiefs and stuff like that. Okay. So going back to Russiagate, which you were bringing up at the end there, um, I think it's worth uh, touching on that for a second uh, in connection with the neocons, right? Because, um, you know, frequently and especially now, you know, that uh, the, the Mueller reports come out and all of this, um, you know, Trump has really taken it upon himself to sort of promote all of Russiagate as sort of like this Democrat-funded, Democrat-planned, um, you know, hoax, as he calls it, Um but actually, you know, there's actually a lot of uh, neo neoconservative links to the beginning of Russiagate, including the Steele dossier, which was like that um, really salacious uh, dossier about all these claims about Trump and Russia uh, that was published by BuzzFeed a few years ago and really started a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the Russia hysteria and uh, Trump is a, a Putin has dirt on Trump and all that stuff. Right. So, um you know, there, there's a couple angles to go there. Uh, so, for example, with the Steele dossier, there's the involvement of uh, a major neocon donor. Uh, and then, you know, Fusion GPS also has some uh, neocon, uh, neocon links there. Is there anything you'd like to uh, add about that, maybe? For sure. I mean, this this whole notion um, that this is a Democrat. I mean, I, I would agree with Trump on on some level that, this, that the Russiagate investigation was a witch hunt of some kind. Um, right. That seemed very clear to me. From the beginning, um, you know, even the allegation that Russia had actually hacked the DNC and passed the emails to WikiLeaks, um, that that still has not been proven at all to me. And, um, and you know, I'm still waiting for the, the proof of that. Uh, but that aside, um, the Steele dossier, the origins of it are very, very interesting to me um, because here's a guy, Chris Steele, who knew Litvinenko. Um, you know, another prong in sort of the neocon propaganda build against Russia. Litvinenko was someone who was very crucial 
after the Magnitsky Act was passed to try to essentially paint Russia as a country that murders its own citizens or just murders, you know, just like political assassinations. Um, and that was the, uh, the Russian spy who was poisoned in the UK. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And he was actually close to, uh, Chris Steele. Um, and what I find interesting just about that connection in and of itself is that, you know, Litvinenko, most of the people who are already sort of very aware of Litvinenko and his family and knew him were associated with this group of neocons, uh, including Bill Browder. He was actually close to Litvinenko's spouse as well. Um, so there's this, there's this little network that's, that's existed, you know, that's kind of been building itself up. All these little, all these people, all these players. Um, and so Chris Steele, um, was hired apparently by Fusion GPS, uh, for, you know, on behalf of the DNC, uh, when they had taken on the work of this oppo research from Trump. Um, but what's interesting about that for me is I don't, it doesn't make sense to me that the Democrats would have been crafty enough or smart enough to even suggest tracking down Chris Steele or hiring him. And, and the guy who runs Fusion GPS, Glenn, Glenn Simpson, um, has been basically concocting this Trump Russia theory since like the nineties, I believe. Um, so I guess the most important part of the Steele dossier story for me is that the organization who originally hired Fusion GPS, uh, to do Trump oppo research was, uh, a neocon organization called the Washington Free Beacon, um, which is funded by a top um, neoconservative GOP donor named Paul Singer. And also the outlet was funded by a project for the New American Century alumni named Michael Goldfarb. Now, Michael Goldfarb is interesting as well because he also worked as a Georgian lobbyist and was close with uh, Saakashvili, uh, the, the, I believe the prime minister of Georgia at that time. So you have this little network here of these people who are have connections to UK intelligence have connections to, you know, these Eastern European, uh, puppets, puppet governments, essentially, that are propped up by the United States. And, and then, and then for some reason, we're supposed to believe that the Steele dossier was only concocted after the Democrats, um, took over the, the Fusion GPS project. Um, and I just find that pretty much impossible to believe, especially because of what we know now is that John McCain and Victoria Newland um, two people who are basically neocon conduits were uh, were basically um, the ones responsible for getting the Steele dossier uh, the attention of the State Department and the FBI in the first place um, within the Obama administration. So um, that's where I that you know that's where my brain goes w- with that. So I think that there's the, we need to unpack this whole thing. And I think if Trump you know if Trump's Attorney General William Barr does an investigation to figure out how this happened, it's going to have to be awfully narrow because uh, it's going to open up some unsavory doors to the fact that, you know, the GOP was actually against Trump at one time and a lot of the neocons, you know, were were as well. So this is not just a Democrat witch hunt. Um, There are a lot of, you know, big time right wing GOP players who are involved in this as well, I believe. Right. Well, um, just to add to that, uh, I think one more neocon connection that I just learned about recently in connection to that is that uh, Glenn Simpson, right, who's one of the uh, Fusion GPS co-founders, he used to work uh, as a senior fellow at this think tank called the um, International Assessment and Strategy Center, and that was founded by Arthur Waldron, uh, who used to head the Asia Study Center at the American Enterprise Institute, which is um, 
for, for listeners that don't know, that's, you know, one of the major neoconservative think tanks that employed, uh, you know, Paul Wolfowitz, John Bolton, a lot of these uh, big name neoconservatives. So it's just really interesting to me, you know, and, and since we're talking about the bipartisan nature of what, you know, neoconservatism has become, it's just really um, interesting that like even something that's being framed as such a partisan issue, you can even see like the bipartisan currents of, of what, you know, this this political movement has become and, and something as supposedly partisan as, as Russiagate. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the, that's really the key to what's going on. I mean, I, I think that, you know, they need, they need to maintain this illusion of partisanship and especially wants to maintain this illusion that the G, GOP is a unified front behind him. But we, re, we, we all know that the GOP was trying to do a contested convention and strip him of the nomination. I mean, you know, that mentality was there um, and it was very strong. So between the, those two years, you know, between from then and now, um, we're supposed to all pretend like, um, you know, everybody's behind Trump and it's against the Democrats. But we, as you said, yeah, we know that there was a bipartisan effort to do this um, and even possibly get him impeached. I mean, it seems like that was the goal of of, uh, of Russiagate, perhaps or one of the goals, I should say, because um, we've we've discussed, Whitney, that it seems like one of the main goals is actually to censor the Internet, um, which oddly. And, you know, not, I guess not that surprisingly, the project for the new American century in rebuilding America's defenses, one of the main goals that they lay out in that paper is control of cyberspace. Right. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't lay it out in the detail that we're seeing now, but they, that's essentially what they wanted. And they kind of are getting their wish. <laughs> right. I mean, I think we've seen that too with things like Hamilton 68, you know, which was sort of used a lot with this whole Russiagate promoting. Uh, bit and that you know is associated with Bill Crystal and things like this and and all of this you know uh, Russian disinformation campaigns and all of that in 2016. Um, so considering what what went on with all of that in the aftermath of the last election, uh, what do you see um, in in terms of those efforts to control cyberspace or independent media and things like that? What do you do? You, do you predict that getting uh, worse and to what extent worse uh, ahead of the 2020 election? Oh my God. I mean, now that you've thrown the election into there, I mean, I, I think I, I, sadly, I think it's going to get worse. Um, and I think that, I mean, this is not even that crazy of a prediction. I think it's obviously going to happen is that in 2020, we're going to see massive news stories, floods of news stories talking about how their foreign actors trying to meddle in the 2020 election. Um, and so get ready for that because that's going to be, you know, they're going to try to throw a wrench in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from one from one political uh, foe to another. I mean, I wanted to talk about to you about Iran as well. I mean, right now that's really where the U.S. administration has its eye. I mean, yes, there's definitely been a push in the Trump administration to bring the U.S. to the brink of war with Iran. So, for instance, it was recently reported that John Bolton ordered the military to get ready to send 120,000 troops there, and that. <laughs> And that's actually a number that's, uh, you know, quite similar to what would, uh, what they invaded Iraq with. And there's been a number of quite half-hearted scandals that appear designed to act as pretenses to, you know, stoke the flames of war. One that we talked about last week on the show was, uh, uh, the damaging of these Saudi oil tankers in the Straits of Hormuz. How real is that threat of war with Iran? And is it something the neocons have been thinking about for a long time? Yeah, I mean, 
the the path to war with Iran with the neocons is an interesting one because they've been trying uh, to get war with Iran uh, I mean forever um, and it's you know we we've mostly seen a climb towards war with Iran a slow climb since the Bush administration um, that had uh, a setback uh, in the form of the Iran deal in the second term of the Obama administration, um, which I would argue is really one of the only good things Obama did um, during his presidency. And that, you know, that uh, deal uh, was, uh, seemed to kind of turn the heat down on that climb. Um, what the Trump administration has done is, you know, started that clock over again, that climb, and they've turned, you know, they've turned the speed up on it um, quite a bit. So, the the pieces that are putting in place now um, are are really escalating things at a very uh, quick level here, um, and specifically um, all the new sanctions uh, that they've put on uh, the harshest sanctions so far on Iran, um, and this is all sort of coming after all the rhetoric that we've heard from the Trump administration. Um, about how Iran is responsible as the world's largest sponsor of terrorism. Uh, they've already declared the Iranian Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization. Um, these all, all these little moves that the Trump administration are doing are designed to escalate us closer to war. Um, and the neocons, of course, would argue, you know, no, we don't want war to turn the pressure up on Iran so they hand, you know, they change their behavior. Um, that's what a neocon would, you know, uh, it, it would, would sort of disingenuously argue. Um, but the reality is the neocons are very good at raising the stakes and creating these situations where just a small spark could start something very serious. And I think that that's essentially their real goal is they want to keep turning up the pressure against Iran so that if Iran does just something very little and makes one misstep, that it would be enough to... Um, basically spur some kind of military assault on their country. And um, if we're talking about the, the neocons in Trump's administration now, um, it does seem to be, there does seem to be a particularly hawkish uh, flavor with, um, with certain people in his administration who are, have been very obsessed with going after Iran specifically. And uh, there was a split among sort of the neocon consensus around maybe 2007, 2008, where a lot of neocons stopped talking about invading or going after Iran. And they sort of put on the back burner. Um, and I listened to it actually in an interesting interview once with a, a neocon named Jonathan Kay, who's now this anti-social justice lawyer, writer for Quillette, um, who said that the reason why he doesn't call himself a neocon anymore is because of the neocons obsession with going after Iran. And he felt that that was too extreme for him. Um, so there, there was this kind of a split back then between neocons who, and I, and I, and I would say neocons who say they want to invade Iran and say they don't want to. And I don't, what I mean, what I don't mean is that the neocons actually don't want to invade Iran versus wanting to invade Iran. Cause I believe that all of them on some level do want regime change in Iran. They just know that in certain circles and quarters, talking about it makes you sound like a psychopath. So they know not to talk about it. Um, so that's basically the split I'm referring to. It's just a, basically a PR split. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, this. I, I think this is seriously um, could really go off here, um, and I don't, you know, I'm not taking it lightly at all. At first, I was because, yeah, what Americans are gonna give a shit if Saudi oil tankers, ha- you know, have some tiny holes in them? I mean, no one's gonna care about that. Um, but then, uh, just a few days later, that Iran, you know, the supposedly Iranian Katyusha rocket falls in the green zone. You know, right after they move all these American personnel out and warn about Iranian terrorist attacks in the green zone. Um, so they're trying to pull things here. Um, and I just hope that some provocation isn't staged or some kind of event isn't staged to actually make Americans want to get on board with this because I don't see anybody getting on board with it right now, the direction that it's going. But that doesn't mean that the Trump administration wouldn't do it. Um, just because they couldn't get the public to go along. So. Right. And these things can also happen just by accident, can't they? I mean, if you look on a map, Iran is completely surrounded by U.S. bases, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, other parts of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. They're almost completely surrounded. And yet these uh, these sorts of provocations seem extremely banal, actually. When you when you look at the damage that those Saudi ships had, you know, it looked like the sort of damage a rock might do. There was no casualties. I don't think there was even any injuries. And yet it seems that the pushback for war against Iran seems to be coming primarily from military figures who are saying this is a crazy idea, perhaps because we don't really have an organized and large scale anti-war movement in the West, really. Um, a lot of people are saying, you know, if we would invade Iran, it would be another Iraq, a, catast- a catastrophic war with huge casualties that you can never get away get away from but frankly i think that might be the best case scenario because iran is a a bigger country a much more organized military a people who are generally unified against uh, u.s intervention my worry is that that could be uh, just a just a calamity on on an enormous scale that we haven't seen for decades oh yeah i mean you're absolutely right it's it's it, there's no, there would be no comparison to any modern war that the U.S. has uh, launched. Um, it'd be absolutely catastrophic. And um, the the disturbing part is that there was even talk during the Obama administration of using nuclear weapons on Iran. Um, so you can only imagine what kind of talk has gone in, the, you know, within the confines of the Trump administration about using tactical nukes or MOABs. Um, my feeling is that if the Trump administration did something, they would do something really brutal and quick and fast as sort of a, almost like in their mind, like a death blow to make Iran surrender. Um, that's the mentality I think that the Trump administration is operating on. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put anything past them. Um, but I don't think that they would just send in like ground troops and do an Iraq style you know, normal bombing campaign. When I say normal bombing campaign, it sounds horrible, but I mean, I, I, I actually fear that Trump might actually drop a nuke, um, if I'm really being honest. Well, you know, we sort of saw this with Tom Cotton, right, who I would definitely consider to be a neoconservative senator. Um, Absolutely. He, he was, um, I think it was on PBS's firing line, he was saying something like, yeah, uh, what with Iran would be really fast and easy, it would be swift, and we would just hit them twice. You know, you know, two big strikes or something. But, you know, the unspoken thing there is like how big would those strikes have to be for it really to be, you know, a definitive end of any sort of war, like a two strike war. I mean, obviously, 
to me, it sounded like an unspoken uh, mention of nukes there. And what's really interesting about talking about nukes in um, Iran, well, it's also really disturbing, I would say, um, are the role of like these uh, major neoconservative donors in directing, um, you know, tr- uh, Trump's Iran policy. So, for example, we know like Paul Singer, who we were talking about earlier, um, who gave Trump like a million dollars after he was elected. Um, Sheldon Adelson is Trump's biggest donor. Um, yeah. You know, both of these guys, uh, you know, their main thing when they were lobbying Trump was about withdrawing from the Iran deal. And, you know, of course they got that. And also, um, John Bolton, the main reason he's in the administration is because Sheldon Adelson worked uh, with the Zionist Organization of America to get H.R. McMaster fired and have John Bolton replace him. Right? So, I mean, wow. I, I think that makes um, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, really important to pay pay attention to here. And let's remember what Sheldon Adelson talked about doing in 2015 when the Iran uh, nuclear negotiations were going on. He said any sort of diplomatic engagement of Iran was, quote, the worst idea I could ever imagine. And his idea of negotiating was to nuke um, a, a, an unpopulated area of Iran's desert as a warning and then threaten that the next nuke would be dropped on top of Tehran, Iran's capital, and that the U.S. could use that as a negotiating tool to negotiate from, quote, a position of strength, right? So, I mean, this is the guy, Sheldon Adelson. I mean, you can really argue that, you know, he's really calling a lot of the shots in, in the Trump administration. I mean, Trump takes his phone calls all the time. Trump gave some random presidential medal to Sheldon Adelson's wife uh, for no apparent reason, you yeah. know? And uh, so I think, you know, Sheldon Adelson is really sort of like an unspoken guy here, and he's uh, clearly a neoconservative donor, um, in my opinion, because of his closeness to Bolton. I mean, I think that's a pretty um, troubling giveaway. Do you think that, um, you know, people people are always talking about, you know, John Bolton's influence on Iran policy. Do you think that maybe Sheldon Adelson ha- might have a, a, a bit of an outsized role uh, in directing Trump's uh, Iran policy as well? Absolutely. I mean... You know, if you want to really point the finger at who is driving Trump's foreign policy, especially in regards to, you know, Israel and Iran, I think you could point to someone like him. So I think that it's it's inappropriate. And I also think that it's, I don't know, I mean, maybe even a little bit naive to suggest that John Bolton is the one holding the reins here and he's the one pushing Trump into war. and He's so belligerent that Trump can't control him. I see that narrative being put out a lot across all media, alternative media and uh, just mainstream media. Right. And I just find that I find, I just find that odd. And, you know, and part of me wonders if that's, a, if that's something that the Trump administration wants people to believe. I, I think it wants people to believe. It's like a, a good cop, a, bad cop thing where Bolton's bad exactly. cop and Trump is good cop. Right. And we were just talking about that on the media podcast that perhaps this is Trump's idea of, a negotiating tactic, and then he wants he wants to put out disinformation or misinformation to make people believe that he's a dove and, and Bolton's a hawk. Um, and I think even you know that interview Trump recently did, where he said that the military industrial complex was the one who wanted him to keep more troops in the Middle East. Yeah. To me, that has the same flavor as like good cop, bad cop. It's like right there, he's the good cop. Totally. You know? um, and it's like, but I, it's to me, it's bullshit. Um, and he, but Trump is very, very smart. He knows how to put, do PR. He knows how to control the media. Um, and I think that this is an appearance he wants people to believe. And, and apparently this is something that Reuters reported on. And I don't know if I trust the reporting, but it claimed that someone from the Iranian government was trying to get a direct line to Trump because they felt that Bolton was too belligerent and they could appeal to Trump's like reticent to go to, reticence to go to war. 
Um, now that that's interesting to me because that means that that good cop that bad cop dynamic is actually working to their advantage. Well, I think um, it's also worked on the American public to a big extent because of how often you see that narrative circulated that oh, it's Bolton's fault. Oh, we have to fire Bolton, and sort of acting like Bolton was forced upon Trump, even though Trump intentionally chose to appoint him because it's you know uh, being national security advisor, you're appointed by the president, right? So it's not like yeah. know, Trump made that decision. So I think it's um. I would agree with you there. And talking about, you know, Trump's recent comments about, oh, how bad the military industrial complex is, and he called it by name. A lot of people that still want to cling to that narrative that Trump is secretly anti-war, you know, cited that. And then I think it was just a few days later, it came out that the Trump administration was going to circumvent Congress to sell something like $8 billion in weapons to allies in the Middle East, citing yeah. the, the Iran threat, right? So he goes uh, in, in public, right? And he says, you know, oh, the military industrial complex is bad. And I'm trying to like, you know, sort of made it sound like he's trying to fight against them. And then he goes, you know, just a few, like a few days later. And then, you know, uh, you could argue illegally by circumventing Congress, you know, uh, uses executive order to approve billions of dollars in arms sales to the places like Saudi Arabia and, and Israel and, and uh, the UAE and stuff like that. So I think, you know, that's a, that's a really good example sort of proving this whole uh, good cop, bad cop strategy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, actions speak louder than words, don't they? And people seem to be really, uh, really, they just want to, you know, hang on Trump's words and believe he's like an anti-interventionist, don't they? But they're constantly, all the Trump administration are using this phrase, you know, all options are on the table with Iran. And that specifically means nuclear bombing the country to smithereens. In fact, uh, there was a journalist that famously asked one of these neocons back in George Bush's day, uh, what does all options include uh, a nuclear attack? And they just repeated, yes, all options are on the table. So this is really the sort of level of savagery that people have to deal with when talking about the Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no... I, that's that's what's so fascinating to me about how anybody could still be thinking, you could still be taking Trump's rhetoric about war at face value. I mean, even someone like Rand Paul, he, he claims he's in these Oval Office meetings with Trump and, you know, he's trying to appeal to his anti-war side and, you know, he's the only one in the room that agrees with them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's strange how many people are still holding on to this narrative. Um, and ultimately, I mean, we, what we can say for sure is that Trump is a really good con man. And I think that's what yeah. we need to remember here <laughs> is that, is that, I mean, especially on this directly, it's like the fact that he's managed to con uh, not just like anti-war people on the right, but also anti-war people on the left is pretty impressive. I mean, that's that's something that, you know, I don't I haven't seen any other president or politician be able to do um, at that level before. I mean, you still well, have zero hedge writing, art, you know, zero hedge um, writing articles saying that he's, you know, he, he's still trying to hold. Basically, the zero hedge narrative is that he's giving the bare minimum. To right. please the military yeah. industrial complex in order to like distract them for the real agenda, which is to stop war. And it's like, really? Come on. To me, this is kind of reminiscent of how um, a lot of people saw the best in Obama all the time and insisted that it was that, you know, he was trying to do everything he could, but uh, it was really the forces that be that were forcing him to do these things. Um, in terms of like trying yeah. to appeal to Trump, he seems like a complete naive who, um, who really kind of his uh, his uh, his brain changed immediately just by like you know finding somebody who says something a bit different. Do you remember he came back from China? He sounded like some sort of 
revolutionary Maoist, and then you know he goes off to you know speak with Putin, and suddenly he sounds like he's you know Putin's best friend. I think this guy has just got such a, a low level understanding of politics and ideology. I mean, his ideology is just himself, really. And well, I think he knows how to play people really well, though, too. So, like, going back to the military-industrial complex bit, you know, like, Trump, since the very beginning of his administration, has made it a cornerstone of his foreign policy to sell weapons. And so much so that the State Department now, the diplomats, basically, when they have any meeting, they have to sort of stump U.S. weapons, you know? And a lot of Trump's, like, you know, make America great again domestic economic initiatives have been made at, like bumping up weapon sales and stuff like that. And, you know, to, to sort of bring this back to the same, uh, you know, vein of, of neoconservatives uh, and whatnot, it's really interesting, too, that, like, one of the uh, major neocon think tanks that we could talk about, uh, you know, in, in relation to the military-industrial complex is the Institute for the Study of War, right, which is founded by uh, uh, Fred Kagan and his wife, Kimberly Kagan. Um, and that's also funded, you know, by major weapon manufacturers that are benefiting hugely from the Trump administration. And, you know, some of the main people in that uh, think tank uh, also sort of uh, when they go on media appearances, they sort of act like um, they have this inside uh, line into the Trump administration. Uh, do you have any perspectives on, on the Institute for the Study of War in that regard, Ravi? Yeah, well, it's really interesting you bring them up because, as we know, the Kagan, you know, especially Robert Kagan, has actually called Trump Hitler. Um, he's been one of the most outspoken critics of the Trump administration from the neocon camp. Um, and his family, um, runs this. I would say they're probably one of the most crucial war think tanks in DC, um, nearly entirely funded by defense contractors. Um, and they have a general, uh, that I believe is actually, I want to say like the CEO or something of it, but I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up, but his name is he's General like Jack Keane. Or something, or vice chairman, okay. or something. I think, yeah, yeah. And he, um, you know, and when the Institute for Study of War, when Trump first got in, um, I was kind of wondering to myself, you know, will the Institute for the Study of War be working with the Trump administration, just like they were with the Obama and the Bush administrations previous? Um, and you know, it's at first it seemed like the answer was no. You know, there seemed to be, you know, the Kagans. I'm sure have a lot of animosity towards Trump, but at the same time. This think tank is, you know, very, very tapped into military operations. I mean, their assessments, their data, um, is so valuable, uh, to the military that even Max Boot says that they have more knowledge about what's going on on the ground than the U.S. government does. Um, he said that on camera. So, you know, this general goes on Fox News and he's basically talking, um, as if he understands the Trump administration's whole play, like he can see it, you know, from beginning to end. And I, I found that kind of fascinating because this was, you know, I've been paying very close attention to these think tanks. And this is the first time I've seen somebody from that think tank uh, appear to actually have a direct eye into the administration. Um, and that makes sense. I mean, at, you know, at a certain point, you know, I'm sure that that think tank would be working with people in the Pentagon, you know, regardless of Robert Kagan's hatred for Trump. Um, but then there's another think tank, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, that is actually their explicit goal is uh, regime change in Iran. They were a neocon think tank formed after 9-11, I believe, by a guy named Clifford May. And uh, neoconservatives Michael Adine and James Wolsey uh, sit on the board of this think tank. And I don't know if you remember this, where a bunch of bin Laden files were released by the CIA um, about... I think I want to say a year ago, 
um, Mike Pompeo made this press release, this announcement um, that they were going to release this bin Laden cash. And what they did is they actually gave exclusive access to the bin Laden cash uh, before they gave it to the public. And they actually never gave the full cash to the public. They only gave it to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies directly and let the Foundation for Defense of Democracies release these cherry-picked you know, media leaks and, and reports claiming that bin Laden and Iran were working together and that Iran had some involvement in 9-11. So the Trump administration has already worked with the, one of the biggest neocon think tanks out of D.C. Um, to try to basically tie the 9-11 attacks to Iran uh, about a year ago. Um, and I think that it even made its way into some of the 9-11 lawsuits, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be yeah. wrong. Yeah, there, there was a lawsuit, I think, that actually ruled that Iran was responsible. Um, it didn't really do yeah. anything, but it was it was sort of like a PR move, basically, in my opinion, because it didn't have any tangible consequences. For sure, yeah. We're speaking with Robbie Martin at Fluorescent Grey on Twitter. He's uh, he's a filmmaker and a musician. And he did the trilogy, A Very Heavy Agenda. Robbie, I wanted to get your opinions on Venezuela as well. And I wanted to get there first by just discussing John Bolton. I know you said, you know, he's not a massive player in this, but I think it's worth thinking about John Bolton because he does seem to be a particularly, peculiarly awful human being. I mean, he's one of the most prominent neocons in the news right now. He started off as a campaigner. Uh, in politics for the racist segregationist Barry Goldwater in the 60s. He went on to work for Senator Jesse Helms in the 80s. And in the 80s, Helms was basically making his name opposing civil rights, LGBT rights, and he even campaigned to block people with HIV entering the US. He's constantly uh, advocating war with Iran and is a driving force in the US policy in Venezuela right now. I heard him on Fox News, and he was very candid, and he said, this is all about oil. He said, quote, it will make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies invest in and produce the oil capabilities in Venezuela. I wanted to ask you, it seems that Juan Guaido, uh, his uh, presidential candidacy in this coup failed. Do you think President Maduro has weathered this storm, and what's the neocons' role uh, being in Venezuela, what do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me try to figure out how to answer. So, I think that there's a good sign that this, I would almost describe it as a show coup, because it doesn't seem like Juan Guaido is really even given significant support by the U.S. other than like PR support for this coup. Apparently, he only had, for their most recent attempt, he only had about 80 soldiers. Um, which seems kind of ridiculous. Um, I mean, I guess in other countries that little soldiers maybe has worked to, to pull off a coup before. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does seem like that what the, I mean, if I'm going to guess what the administration wanted, um, is that John, is that John Bolton, you know, is probably ready to do this. I mean, I'm sure that he's not, you know, he's not worried about the consequences of a prolonged, uh, sort of, foreign policy excursion in South America. Um, it's Donald Trump who has to worry about the public fallout from what the consequences of that will be. So I think there's definitely some truth to the idea that John Bolton, you know, really he has nothing to lose. I mean, I, yeah, sure, Trump could fire him, but um, he, you know, this has been something that I'm sure he's had his sights set on for forever. I mean, actually, when I say I'm sure he has, I mean, I know he has. Um, he's been obsessed with 
what he now describes as the Troika of Tyranny, um, which is this, right, yeah. uh, which is this sort of unison of different South American nations, um, and nations south of the equator that do not subscribe to American hegemony, <laughs> essentially. Um, and that, and that actually, one of his main, uh, bones of contention is just Cuba's existence. Um, he, <laughs> yeah. he's, after 9-11, say, he was yeah. actually trying to say that Cuba had a biological weapons program and that we needed to, um, do weapons inspectors there and stuff. So, um, I think this has been a pet project of his for a while. He wanted to sort of bring back this sort of, um, what do you call it? The Monroe Doctrine idea that he wanted to expand the rhetoric of make America great again to make our side of like the, our hemisphere of the world great again kind of mentality where it's almost seems acceptable to Trump's base to meddle in South America because it's in our backyard, quote unquote. Um, so I think that that was sort of by design as well that he wanted to sort of, you know, push that. I, th- I, I would say that's definitely John Bolton's idea. Um, but, you know, one funny incident, I don't know if you remember this, is that he was caught in a press conference um, holding a notepad that said something like 5,000 U.S. troops to Colombia yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and the way he, he was, like, holding the notepad, like, facing the press. So everyone could see it, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that that was on purpose, honestly. And I think that he, you know, and I think that th- there is some kind of psychological warfare aspect to this neocon good cop bad cop dynamic, um, but I don't know if that's why the coup failed. If it was just because Trump was getting cold feet and didn't want to go through with this, I, you know, I really can't say. But I don't think that Maduro um, weathered this storm. I think that it's going to come back at him again and again and again and again, simply because Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves, and as right. long as they do. The U.S. government and, you know, these other entities are not going to stop trying to overthrow his government. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's going to they're not going to give up anytime soon. Right. But I do think that the Trump administration wants something that looks good, looks fast, hard, strong, clean in terms of a war. And if he can't figure out a way to do that, I do think he's reticent about it. Um, so I think that's so, I don't know. I mean, I probably said some contradictory things in there, but. Well, it was interesting. An Argentinian newspaper reported that Juan Guaido, uh, the, the U.S.-supported uh, president, actually met with uh, Vice President Mike Pence before the coup attempt. And Juan yeah. Guaido promised that uh, he could get 50% of the military to join him immediately. And when he did, uh, when he did launch this coup, uh, an absolute maximum of 0.1% of the Venezuelan military joined <laughs> him. And that actually might already be pushing that number way high because yeah. a lot of the people with Guan Guaido were actually retired and seem to have been paramilitaries, not members of the military. And it was also reported that Mike Pence was absolutely furious at this and uh, basically called him back and told him, you know, he read them the riot act. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> from what I understand, it was sort of like, you know, uh, the U.S. always thought Guaido had the plan and Guaido thought that the U.S. had the plan, and then the U.S. thought that maybe Colombia would have a plan, or Bolsonaro and Brazil would have the plan, and everyone else was thinking that someone else had, like, a full plan developed and no one had it. So um, I would agree with you, Robbie, that they're going to try this again later. I think they're going to wait for, um, you know, sanctions, which they've beefed up you know, um, since, you know, Guaido became, like, declared his parallel presidency and all of this. 
um, especially with like the oil sanctions and whatnot, um, that they're just going to try and wait for that to, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, sort of soften the country up for an invasion or some sort of paramilitary thing that they're going to try and uh, keep going for that oil because, you know, it's not going anywhere. So that's unfortunate for Venezuela. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Nicaragua in the 80s, the, the U.S. put sanctions on the country for years and years, and it wasn't until 1989 that the people of Nicaragua basically gave in and elected Violeta Chamorro as their president, who was the U.S.-backed candidate. So this is certainly could be a long, they could be in it for a long time. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think that that's obviously the strategy that's being used in a long-term sense here right now is just to destabilize the country um and and create such desperation that we you know you need to vote um maduro or the chavistas out of power i mean that that's what i think that they've been trying to do you know this whole time but um yeah we'll just have to see what happens i mean it, you know this embassy standoff was such a bizarre incident too i don't know how closely you guys were paying attention to that but the trump administration were essentially letting the secret service um uh sanction a violent <laughs> protest right, against yeah. the Venezuelan well, embassy uh, where they tried to break down the doors and shit. I mean, it was crazy. Right. Well, one of Mint Press's uh, staff writers was actually inside the embassy, so we followed that pretty closely. We actually had him on on, on our podcast last week. So, oh, cool. <laughs> that okay. was pretty wild. Yeah. So, uh, on that note, uh, that's all the time we have, Robbie. Uh, so, where can people follow your work? Um, right now, they can file, follow my work. Um, I the most recent stuff I'm doing is um, live regular live streams. Um, off my own YouTube channel, uh, they can go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash a very heavy agenda. Um, they can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Robbie Martin. And, uh, if you want to check out my documentary film about the neocons and about Cold War 2.0, um, you can check it out at, uh, a very heavy agenda.com and, um, the podcast I do with Abby, uh, Media Roots Radio. Um, it's available on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, pretty much every platform. Great. Sounds like you've got a lot of places we can follow you. Okay. Thank you to Robbie Martin for joining us today. You've been listening to the free edition of the Mintcast, a podcast from Mint Paris News. Do subscribe to the show. And you can even support us on patreon.com slash mintpressnews. For Whitney Webb and myself, Alan McLeod, until next week, stay fresh. Mm-hmm.